You are listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast, part of Just Powers, an interdisciplinary and community-engaged network of research projects focused on climate justice issues and socially just approaches to energy transition. I'm Dr. Sheena Wilson, and in this podcast, we explore the idea of deep energy literacy. In this first series, titled Deep Celerities, we begin by investigating questions, issues, challenges, and potentials of solar energy. Specifically, this series will shed light on a solar energy infrastructure project proposed for installation in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. This solar project proposed by EPCOR, the municipal utility, for installation at their E.L. Smith water treatment plant has evoked a range of divergent and sometimes unanticipated responses and imaginaries as stakeholders speculate about what futures are possible and preferable at the intersections of energy futures, ecological futures, indigenous futures on land rights, feminist futures, municipal futures, and climate futures, to name but a few. Through a series of interviews that seek to explore these diverse perspectives, we examine both the perceived challenges and potentials of this energy transition project. Focused on deep energy literacy, we look to these conversations for insights into approaches and strategies that have the potential to disrupt power relations and create more just energy futures for all. We recently had the opportunity to speak to David Dodge, who was, at the time of the interview, the co-chair of the City of Edmonton's Energy Transition, Climate Resilience and Adaptation Committee. David is host and producer of the multimedia storytelling project, Green Energy Futures, and an environmental journalist who has also worked for multiple nonprofit organizations, committees, and boards oriented towards renewable energy and energy transition. In this interview, we speak to David about the complex questions and issues that have emerged in response to the solar farm currently being proposed by EPCOR and slated for installation in Edmonton's River Valley, as well as his thoughts on energy transition more broadly and the future of green energy. Thank you so much for taking time to come talk to us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So today we're here with David Dodge, who is, among other things, uh, the co-chair of the Energy Transition Advisory Committee to the Uh, City Council in Edmonton and Chair of the Board of uh, Energy Efficiency Alberta. So you're also the producer and host of Green Energy Futures. We should give a plug for that. That's a great podcast with lots of things for people to listen to. Um, And you do a lot of multimedia storytelling um, and tell stories about basically green energy pioneers, I'd say, who are moving their homes and businesses and communities to, to green energy. So how long have you been doing that? About seven years. Uh, You know, I had this vision seven years ago that I I was so fed up with what I was reading in the media about things, about clean technology, about green energy, uh, that I thought, well, why not invent my own media? So, you know, I did one of those crazy things people do in their lives. And I, I sat down and I wrote a vision for if I could do what I absolutely wanted to do, what would it be? And it would be traveling across Canada, meeting the best and the most inspiring people involved with these technologies, uh, mostly as a process to validate the technologies that were good and, and could actually make a change and change the world. And so uh, I, I was extremely fortunate because usually when you do that, uh, you know, it feels good and then you go on and you get a real job. Uh, but I was very lucky and, and was able to secure some pretty significant sponsorship and I was funded to travel the country and produce documentaries for many years. That's great. What did you do before that that led you to this? Um, stuff like that. 
I was uh, I produced a series called the Ecofile on uh, CKUA Radio, which was a six hundred part series, three hundred part series on sustainability. And again, that was uh, in the nineties, so that was a little ahead of its time. Uh, it wasn't long after the Brundtland Commission and Grow Harlem Brundtland released our Common Future, which is kind of the Bible of sustainability. Uh, I was actually able to interview uh, Jim McNeil, who uh, helped her write our Common Future. He was a Canadian. He was the Secretary General of the United Nations Environment Program at the time uh, that they held the Earth Summit, the famous Earth Summit. Right. And and so how did you get interested in all these issues around the environment? Um I think I was born into it. I, I don't know how. I, th- I think my mom taught me to watch birds and care about the outdoor world. And I hiked a lot and loved the outdoors. And the first job I had after being a journalist was as the first executive director of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society in Alberta, the first paid staff member they ever had. And so at that time, I thought saving wilderness was the was my calling. And the only thing that was important, because to me... Uh, Wild places and species are kind of the root directory of all life. And uh, so I thought that's really important to protect. And and as I went through the years, I realized that uh, you live in a geopolitical world. And if you care about those things and other things, you've got to care about energy because it affects the geopolitical politics of the world in profound ways, uh, not the least of which uh, is the connection with climate change, which obviously affects all of these things. So um, I have so many things that I could ask you about today and so many things we could talk about. But before getting into the specifics, I was hoping to start with some of your general thoughts on the project. Well, that's a pretty open-ended question. As an energy project, it's a great idea. And it's really great to see EPCOR embracing uh, clean technologies uh, and, uh, you know, trying to marry it to their businesses, which their big business now, obviously, is the water business since Edmonton transferred that function to them uh, a year or two ago. Um, So on the surface as an energy project, and the Energy Transition Advisory Committee actually endorsed the project as an energy project. It's a really great thing to see. We need to see a lot more of this. Uh, It's, um, uh, you know, we don't look at the land use issues though. And, you know, intuitively, I would have thought that any time you touch the river valley in Edmonton, you touch a nerve. And it's a nerve that's kind of in our DNA here in Edmonton. Whenever anybody proposes something for the river valley, we all get up in arms. And a lot of us take the uh, the uh, approach that, you know, when you let one thing happen, you're going to see it multiply and you have to let other, other things open in the River Valley. And the River Valley is really our treasure. So we didn't look at it from a land use perspective, the Energy Transition Committee, as an energy project. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's something we'd like to see EPCOR, the City of Edmonton, other organizations do a lot more of uh, if we're going to play a role in energy transition. As a land use issue, that's a whole different can of worms. So for, I do want to hear m- more about the land use issues that uh, were not investigated by the committee, but I'm, I'm really curious, what are, the, what are the real wins as an energy project? Well, it's connected to their operations. And, and so uh, the way our energy regulations work uh, is that's the best way to do it, is to provide your own power. You get the, high, the biggest bang for your buck. So, I mean, they could have built it out in a field somewhere, but then they become an energy producer. So this is kind of like in-house energy. You know, they're satisfying their own needs and it actually works out very well that way for them. And they did a lot of homework and a lot of research into that to figure out how to do that. Uh, and so it does make a lot of sense for a business to do that. And it makes a lot of sense for EPCOR to start learning about that because there's going to be more demand for that sort of thing all over the place. And the more they learn, the better for them. Interviewing some uh, people about this, people have talked about the behind the meter and in front of the meter. Do you think you could explain that to our listeners, what that means? 
I, I'm not intimately familiar with the specifics. I've heard the stories and I've talked to the Upcore people, but I, I believe this is a behind-the-meter project, uh, which is why it makes a lot of sense. So again, if they move it somewhere else, then they just become an energy producer, and that's a whole different series of regulations that apply. Uh, and if you're behind the meter, uh, the, I, I think the greatest economic case can be made because I, I believe you're a micro-generator still at, at that scale, and those regulations, micro-gen regulations apply to you, and it's the biggest benefit. Okay, great. Thanks. So can community projects also be behind the meter? If you have a community solar project, is that their microgen? Are they then also behind the meter? Well, okay. It depends what you mean by community project. Community is a really big word, and it means a lot of different things I've learned over the last few years. So if you have a small project, and uh, you're a townhouse, and you own a bunch of units, and you're you know, you pay the bills together. Uh, that's something you can pretty easily do today. If you're multiple owners across multiple buildings and trying to combine, it gets a little more complicated. The regulations aren't as forgiving for that sort of thing. And they probably should be, and they need to be. And it's an evolution we need to go through. And I, I trust that's something that the AUC is looking at right now as they reevaluate this whole scheme. That's right. I wanted to, again, follow up about the land use issues, too. So you've mentioned that the location's a real issue. So can you speak to that for our listeners? I don't say the location's a real issue because I'm not familiar with uh, the, the land use issues involved. But again, the, the people that are worried about it uh, are worried about uh, habitat and, and, and about species in the River Valley, that sort of thing. Uh, this site, I mean, the way we looked at it as ETAC, we didn't really look beyond the surface. All we looked at was this was a site controlled by EPCOR. It was probably going to be an industrial industrial development someday, another water expansion of the water treatment. Uh, and so for us, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't take the conversation beyond that. The people worried about it uh, are, again, worried about the integrity of uh, the biosphere and the river valley and the connectivity between it and the surrounding landscapes. Uh, you'd, you'd have to ask them about their specific concerns. So it's that kind of concern about like full industrialization versus absolute conservation, right? And it's this, you know, it's, 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 an, it's, uh, it's, it's also the inherent contradictions. People who would normally be, these were your words, I think, people who would normally be for a solar project yeah. find themselves against it because of the, the trade-offs, right? And we hear this term trade-offs quite often, right? So, um, Well, I, I met a lot of activists who were uh, opposing it uh, because they came to me and uh, they were reluctant opposers in some ways because they supported the idea of clean energy and solar energy. Uh, but in this case, for them, the the, the ecosystem values uh, were higher, I suppose. So um, the work that I do, I think quite a bit about how uh, energy transition is not just about these technical issues, but it's also about these different social regulations. And, uh, you know, watching uh, your own podcast, I see that you're talking to a lot of people thinking in these same kinds of ways. So what do you think we really need to value differently or how do we need to change our value systems and the way we think through a project like the proposed EPCOR project? Well, it's funny because, like I said, you know, I, I think there's something really cultural about this this specific issue. And I'm not sure how emblematic it is of the greater issues because it's special because of this sense of value we have for the River Valley. Edmontonians, I mean, you just have to go out in the street, talk to your neighbors right here where you live. And I can almost guarantee you they will value the River Valley and they will put it much higher than maybe even it needs to be. And that's a good thing in my humble opinion, because I, I think we do need to protect it because it's a slippery slope. And, you know, if you're protecting wild places, for example. This is not a wild place. This is an industrial site, but it's in 
the context of a wild place. Uh, and you can only lose once. And so, you know, uh, that you, you need to be very cautious. Right. If this, if this uh, project was located anywhere else, like even just up on above the river valley in, in the area in the eastern part of the city that's there's a lot of industrial, nobody would even notice. It wouldn't even have been in the news <laughs> because everybody would have cheered them and took photos and said, wow, look at Epcor. Look how amazing they are. Uh, again, the context here is that this is a special place at least perceived by Edmontonians. And so that makes it special. Um, I, I don't know how often you're going to see this happen in the context of the city um, because there's very few other places in the River Valley you could even propose a solar project because it's just an, an inappropriate use. This is an industrial site. This is a site that EPCOR controls. We put them there years ago to treat our water. And we, we agreed to give up a little bit of our River Valley. And it was a decision made a long time ago. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of danger of these projects overrunning our River Valley, for example, uh, because I just don't think I'll see that we'll see this come up very often. Um, and there are many opportunities to do this kind of thing that don't involve, uh, you know, doing it in our river valley. There are so many opportunities in the city. There's brownfields, there's uh, major rooftop opportunities, there's other sites that are great opportunities. There's major buildings like the brand new bus barns, for example, with huge horizontal surfaces on the roof. Uh, there's just a lot of opportunities. Do you want to talk for a couple minutes to our listeners about why it's important or increasingly important in a renewable, in an age of renewables, to produce local energy and to produce that energy here as opposed to, say, buying credits for uh, renewables elsewhere? What, what, what's important about the, the energy projects here locally? You know, we, we can get ourselves into a really tangled conversation about this because uh, our first two, two of our early wind projects in Alberta, uh, in fact, one of the largest ones in Canada, Black Spring Ridge near Lethbridge, was built because they were paid credits from California. And that's the only thing that made those projects economic in the beginning. So we have the Black Spring Ridge, which is 300 megawatts, and Halkirk, which is, uh, I think it's 200 megawatts, uh, because of that single fact. Because Alberta wasn't doing anything. Alberta wasn't paying, you know, for, the, for, for its carbon emissions at that time. And uh, so it made those early projects economic. You can't do that now. California won't allow it to be done, let alone us allow it to be done. It's better to deal with the problem in your own backyard, and it's better to be additive. So if you want to make a difference and you care about climate change and you want to buy some green energy, you want to be sure somebody's adding a few solar modules or some wind turbines or, or something, some add a new way of producing new renewable energy so that we're actually going through the process of energy transition and slowly replacing the dirtier energy with clean energy. So without understanding all the gory details, you just want to be sure when you do a project that you're adding new solar modules somewhere or, or if you're buying green energy. You know, it's probably the simplest way uh, is to put it on your own roof because then you can touch and feel and, and you have your solar modules and you know you've made a difference. And I think the city thinks the same way in their energy transition plan. And I think that's why they're going through all these contortions right now, because they're trying to buy green energy to supply uh, 100% of the energy they use in all of the city operations, which is considerable. You know, it's a wind farm or two worth of energy uh, that they use in the city of Edmonton. When you think about LRT and you think about all the operations that we have in the city. Uh, so it's an important decision. It's not as complicated, I think, as sometimes they make it out to be, but, but uh, it is important to do it well. And it's important that we add new generations and replace uh, non-emissions-free generators. 
Yeah. And I guess one thing that I think about quite a bit that adds to the complexities is the way that any energy project, even if it's a renewable energy project, is still placed on the land. And our relationships to land link to larger questions around reconciliation and Indigenous and non-Indigenous relationships and our relationships to broader ecologies. And so I worry about these things. And I'm wondering what you think about how we should be thinking energy and thinking the future and thinking about land uses as we install new energy projects. Yeah, I'm, I, uh, this will sound like a cop out at first, but uh, you know, all energy projects have impacts and uh, it's going to take some land for some of these projects. But what you want to do is minimize the amount of good land that you occupy with these industrial projects and maximize the, uh, the land that is not as valuable uh, for that sort of thing. And again, maximize your other opportunities such as rooftops or whatever the case may be. If you think about the old days, uh, I have a cabin at Ciba Beach, uh, Alberta. And I like to think I'm at the epicenter of the coal industry because both sides of the lake have uh, open pit coal mines that are almost the length of the late lake. The one on the north side is closed now. The one on the south side still feeds uh, Sundance, which is one of the largest point sources of pollution in Canada. Um, so that's a big impact. That's a really big impact. If you think about a wind farm, for example, uh, they do have impacts, uh, but it's... In a way, it's kind of like the oil industry. If you think about, uh, you know, the oil industry coming in and putting a pump jack on your land, but actually, I would argue that the wind farms are much lower impact than the oil industry. The they they have to cut their roads. The there's a chance of spillage. They have to protect against the spillage. Uh, there's sometimes emissions. There's sour gas. There's you know, it's a much more complicated issue. Wind turbines are pretty simple, actually. <laughs> Once you build them, they just stand there and turn. Uh, there are impacts on uh, wildlife, uh, but if you look at all the different ways of producing energy, there are studies out of uh, New York, uh, the lowest impact on wildlife form of generating energy is, I bet you can guess, try. Is it wind? No, it's solar. solar. Oh yeah, I was going to say solar. So I was solar, say solar, solar has almost no impact right. on wildlife. The second lowest is wind. So, you know, yes, it does kill some bats and birds and there are issues and they need to be worked on and research need, needs to be done to minimize those impacts. But if we're going to get energy, uh, it's actually one of the lower impact ways of doing it. So land use is another issue. You don't, you know, it, it, you probably worry about occupying a whole bunch of really fine land that could be growing vegetables with a giant solar farm. And I, I would share that uh, opinion. Uh, I think we should try to minimize that sort of thing. Uh, but again, uh, even as big as the scale of, of solar farms are, um, I just don't think in the long term it has to be a huge impact because, yes, we need a lot of it, but we also have a lot of land and we have a lot of land that's probably appropriate for it as well. So, you know, when I've seen – I've seen projects like the uh, Green Acres Hutterite Farm uh, in southern Alberta where they have two megawatts. So they have one megawatt to run all their farm operations and, and uh, this is solar. Uh, and one megawatt to run their, their industrial recycling plant. So they already have industrial uses of land. Could that land have been farmed? Probably, but in the scale of their operation, it's, it's, I would argue it's probably not that significant in terms of the impact. And the impact on the land itself is minimal. You can't grow anything under it, but it's not actually hurting the land. So farming is largely an industrial practice, which people forget about. I mean, we do have these ideas of the family farm, and there are some family farms still in our Alberta, but increasingly it's an industrial practice. 
even the family farm. And so we have to think about food security. If we're serious about powering down, then things like food and how it's grown and how it's transported and how it's wasted must be part of the conversation. It's all about compromise. You know, there are going to be impacts and I don't think we should whitewash that. Uh, But that does not mean we don't try to minimize them. Uh, in terms of land use, in terms of their impacts on wildlife, in terms of special places. So, you know, if people deem a certain place is special, uh, then it's worth protecting those places. Yeah, I think about I think a lot about these things and what we are trading off and how we're going to have to think differently about trade-offs. I think there are certain kinds of trade-offs that we've accepted and that maybe we have to like rejig how we value what we're trading off. And I guess that's really what this conversation is about with all of these different people that I've invited in to talk about this this plant. It's not it's not about the plant so much as thinking through, you know, what what are we valuing, what are we not valuing and who needs to be part of those conversations. And I think your media project has really um you've worked really hard to talk to a lot of people across a lot of different uh, parts of the country and 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 see what they think. And so who do you think needs to be part of these conversations when we're talking about energy transition? And Well, when we're talking about energy transition, we're really talking about climate change. I mean, there would be no energy transition without climate change, I suspect, uh, because the political um, energy just would not be there to do it. Uh, and climate change is so big. You know, we some of us look the other way and, and we don't look at it. And some of us have are confronted with the reality of it all the time. It is so big, it's almost inconceivable to most of us. Uh, You know, if you think about it, we're in one of the largest extinction events in all of entire history right now uh, because of the impacts of humans, not just climate change, but climate change is a a huge factor in that. And so, uh, you know, do you save a space to save a species that could die from climate change? I mean, this is a very depressing conversation. It's a vicious cycle. Uh, So yes, we need to think about all of these things and we need to do the best we can uh, in a very tough, tough circumstance. And it is hard to know what the best move is. And so I think some people feel an inability to choose or decide or know whether to invest in solar panels or what their decision should be around these these issues. Um, But what I heard you also saying at the beginning was that part of what motivated your whole media project was to go find out what really good technologies and good ideas were out there. So do you have any any big lessons that you want to share with listeners about what you think really needs to happen right now when the IPCC is saying we have basically, you know, 10 years You know, I I think if I've learned one thing is that humans are pretty powerfully motivated in this issue, at least a subset of them. If not, you know, obviously the masses are not. Uh, They, you know, they pull in various ways. But the people I've encountered, and I seek out these people who are doing these amazing things, a lot of them are doing it to do the right thing. Like some of them are amazing entrepreneurs who would be successful in business regardless what they did. Uh, But... uh, the most powerful people I've found are the people that are motivated by these values plus their business. So I see these as solutions. And uh, so, you know, if we make our homes so they don't use energy, that's about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. If we can, if we can uh, tame buildings as a source of greenhouse gas emissions, that can be done. And it can be done with new homes that will be more comfortable, that will protect us against future energy shocks uh, and, and carbon taxes for that matter, because you won't produce any carbon, uh, which you know I think we're going to become increasingly uh, sensitive to carbon, regardless of the cycles that governments go through. Uh, this, is going, this is on an up, uptick over time. There's going to be more sensitivity and there will be real costs 
success uh, of these things. So we do have the solutions. And so, you know, I, I've met people like uh, Kent Rathwell, who owns Sun Country Highway in Saskatoon. And he owned a bird, he bought a bird seed company and he moved to Saskatoon to operate this bird seed company. He thought it was really cool. Uh, and then he got this crazy idea that he would try to create a carbon-free value chain. This guy's an entrepreneur on steroids. I've spent a day with him, a couple days with him, and he gives me a headache because he works so hard. Uh, and he's he's doing it while I'm with him. While I'm with him in the car, he's talking to some mayor from somewhere. Uh, but the guy really does care. He's a, a pretty amazing entrepreneur, uh, and he's made a hell of a difference. And so he started another company called it Sun Country Highway. They installed about two or 3,000 charging stations well ahead of the electric vehicle, uh, uptake in electric vehicles, uh, by convincing other people to pay for them in various devious means. Uh, he convinced other people to share his vision. You know, he convinced uh, Doug Anderson, who's the CEO of PV Mart, to install electric vehicle charging stations at the front door of every single PV Mart in Canada. And so I couldn't have gone to Doug Anderson and said, hey, you know, I really think we should put some electric vehicle charging stations. I think, I, I doubt I would have got to talk to him, uh, first of all. And second of all, he, he, I might have got a nice laugh out of him. But as he told me, he said, you know, I do a lot of business with Kent. And so when he comes to me with an idea, I pay very close attention. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think he's very proud of that action. I don't know, like, if that's produced any returns in his business. It looks pretty cool having Teslas, you know, plugged in and charged at the front doors of PV Marts, which where you go buy birdseed, by the way. Uh, but, you know, that's the kind of story I've run across again and again and again and again. The, uh, the two projects I mentioned earlier, uh, Black Spring Ridge and Halkirk, those were developed by a startup company called Greengate Power. Uh, Dan Balaban started that company. He was a software guy. He was selling software to the oil industry. And he just one day decided he wanted to get into the renewable energy business. So he started a wind company at a time when that was actually not a very good idea <laughs> as an entrepreneur. I mean, he certainly didn't enter into that thinking he would get rich quick. Uh, or if he did, he was probably fooling himself. Uh, but he made a go of it. Incredibly uh, industrious person, you know, and he, he secured those credits from California. He made a couple of big projects. And today, and then he went into a lull when we weren't supporting renewable energy in Alberta. Now he's back in business again. He, he's developing projects. Um, that's the kind of people I run across all the time. They're out there. And I, I find that there are people with an appetite for tackling climate change and they're motivated and uh, some of them are pretty talented at doing it. And so it's really fun and it's very inspiring to share their stories. I think that's good for uh, people to hear, especially people perhaps living here in Alberta locally, because sometimes we feel a bit nervous. Uh, we know there are studies done, um, even by our own municipality, that uh, you know 70% of Edmontonians believe, for example, that they shouldn't really talk about climate change with their neighbours because uh, you know it might be too political, and only to discover that most Edmontonians are very concerned about climate change. So we should all just start discussing these things, and there really is an appetite. I do believe that as well. Um, so what do you think the role of municipalities is in transforming these? I mean, I know you're on you're you're the president of your community league, if I'm correct, right? Past president. Past president of your community <laughs> league. And you're very involved at the municipal level. So do you think there's a particular role for community leagues and municipalities to play in this switch to renewable futures? Well, if my memory serves me right, municipalities are responsible for something like 70% of all emissions happen within their boundaries. Uh, but 
more important than that, municipalities are where things happen. It's the level of government that's actually close to the people. They know the people, they see the people, they feel the people, they hear from the people on a daily basis. And frankly, municipalities are where things get done. And the municipalities have led us on many issues in the past, even though they don't have the revenue sources uh, and they don't even have the governing powers to make a big difference. You know, uh, we could in Alberta, a provincial or a federal government could just decide all energy has to be green tomorrow and they could just do that. Uh, cities can't do that. They have to do it the hard way. They have to convince their citizens this is important. Uh, and then they have to find a way to fund it out of limited revenues. Uh, limited sources of money, uh, and but it happens, and they do it. And we saw it uh, last week when Edmonton City Council, uh, our executive committee, passed their 1.5 degree resolution, which calls on the city to reduce its emissions to uh, stay within the boundaries of 1.5 degree increase in temperature, global average temperature, uh, as per the more aggressive targets of Paris, which I think is pretty amazing for one of the largest carbon-emitting cities uh, in the world. So we're about 20 tons per capita in Edmonton. That's usually where the graph ends. So, you know, all the cities that are as bad as that or worse, you don't get to see them because they go off the graph. Uh, but we're there. <laughs> and I think that's amazing. And I think that we have high em- the fact that we have high emissions is not a reason to give up or throw your hands up. It's a, it's a reason to double down. And we've seen in Edmonton, our community respond to this. So our business community as well. The highest concentration of net zero homes in Canada is in Edmonton of all places places. Uh, They've had no support to develop these technologies, none whatsoever. And yet we have the lowest price net zero home on the market right now uh, in all of Canada, uh, right here in Edmonton. Uh, So yes, it's not easy. There's lots to do. There's much to do. Uh, It's very difficult. And if you stare too long at the goals and and what we have to do, you might get frustrated. So I I don't spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, I spend my time thinking about strategically how we move forward and we keep moving forward and as quickly as we can. Yeah, thank you for raising that issue of last week. I was going to say that lots of people ask how how they can make a difference or how they can get involved. And I, I always encourage them to even just show up for those meetings. And I understand there was quite good attendance, even from people living outside the municipality, but feeling that, you know, Edmonton is the largest close city and really speaking in favor of taking action on climate change. So it's nice to hear that. And it's nice to see people coming out. So um, people can also think about getting involved in that way. What, what other ways can you recommend people get involved in energy transition? I think they just need to learn about it and get inspired by it. And don't be frustrated by it. If you spend all your time on, on Facebook and, and you uh, spend time reading uh, the people that are dumping on this all the time, you, you're not going to get yourself anywhere. So, you know, it is a real issue. Uh, you can deny it all you want, but it is a real issue. There's a lot of science behind it, a lot of scientists behind it. So if you do care, uh, forget about that stuff. You know, what I would do is uh, go to my website, uh, greenenergyfutures.ca, and start listening to stories of these real people who are doing amazing things and maybe you'll find yourself doing it. My wife uh, is not somebody who's wrapped up in this stuff, my wife Manette, uh, at all. You know, like she's dimly aware of it, uh, but it's not her favorite campfire conversation. Uh, but she was the one who led the way we, uh, to buy a, a net zero home. So we bought a net zero home because she, it's something she could do. And, uh, you know, she, uh, yes, it's about the home. She likes the home, but she wanted a net zero home. And she's thought about this for a long time. And she's not like me. She's not somebody who lives and breathes this stuff. She j- it's just something she can do. And it's really easy and it's really tangible and it's quite significant. You know, a home that will produce zero emissions. What do you think the future looks like or what does what the future of Edmontonians or people living in this city look like um, 
you know, 20 or 30 or 40 or 100 years out from now if we've achieved an energy transition? How do our lives look different? Well, I certainly don't have a doom and gloom scenario because that's not me. Uh, I live with my glass half full and keep it that way. Um, I think there's a tremendous potential here for us to grow. I think embracing this vision of tackling climate change and, and, and reducing our emissions is a tremendous opportunity. And it's the best hope for our kids, not just for climate change, but for what are they going to do in the future? How are they going to make a living? What uh, kinds of businesses are they going to open? Well, this is paving the way for that. So these businesses are the businesses of the future. Everybody who's doing this kind of thing, whether it's solar, building net zero homes, uh, all of this knowledge that we're gathering and tackling climate change is actually going to generate the jobs and the businesses and the opportunities of the future, regardless of how successful we are. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be successful. I'm just saying... Uh, when you try, there are benefits. <laughs> yeah, and I agree that there is a lot going on and that, you know, people should celebrate more of that. And it, it, it would be great to go listen to some of the stories that you've produced and, and, and uh, you know, share. people could share their own stories as well, too. There's the Change for Climate campaign where people can share their own stories about what they're doing to get involved. And there really are a lot of people who care about this here in Alberta. I agree. So... It's yeah. really funny. You talked about your social circles or people's social circles and how it's a difficult topic. It is. Absolutely. And I don't force it on my friends. I have a lot of friends of many different stripes, a couple of brothers-in-law that work in the oil industry. And, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an evangelist with this. Well, I guess I am, but I, I don't push it on you. <laughs> you know, if you're interested, I'm happy to fill you up with whatever I've got. But uh, it can be difficult, but I've noticed a change. You know, that conversation is changing. Definitely. I sit around the campfire myself with people from, even with people from Calgary. I think in Edmonton, the conversation has changed much more, much more quickly. Uh, I think in Edmonton, it's an easier topic to embrace now. You can talk about it with just about anyone if you want to. Uh, but, you know, in the past, when, and I'm staying with the campfire analogy, I, I've sat around the campfire with a lot of diverse people. And the people, the classic stereotype in the news of an Albertan who doesn't think climate change exists and doesn't think we should tackle it and it's wrecking the oil industry, those voices were loud and they dominated the conversations and the voices that cared about climate change were worried about climate change and worried about those kinds of things stayed quiet. That's not happening as much anymore. It's starting to change. So uh, for some people, it's waiting till those people leave and then they go, yeah, I, I got I to tell you, I didn't believe what they were saying and blah, blah, blah. They, they're not willing to confront them. Uh, but, you know, they, there's a change happening. It's perceivable. And uh, I think more and more people are talking about it. More and more people believe it. You know, this summer, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't a, a 35, 36 degree summer that got us thinking about climate change. It's climate change of a different kind. Uh, it's the most unsettled weather I can remember in my life uh, in, in the summer of 2019. Yeah, you were talking about how there's been a huge change. And I think to myself, you know, what's that tipping point been? But more specifically, I'm wondering what you think the role of media is, who's somebody who works in the media all the time, every day, and helps to generate these more positive stories about what's going on. What do you think the role of storytelling and narrative and creative ways of addressing this are? It's absolutely crucial. But, you know, as a veteran of the media, I started working in the media when I was still in university. I was a reporter and for a real newspaper while I was still going to school. And I'm an idealist for sure. But, you know, the media, I, gotta, I have to say on these issues, is a follower by and large, is totally a follower. And so they will just go with their perception of, you know, what will sell more ads and, and what will 
keep the readers happy and not rock the boat too much. Uh, but I do think that is changing. Um, you know, I, I think I, it's funny, I'm doing a series uh, of two stories right now on recycling. It's kind of the forgotten environmental action. You know, we used to, people used to think they were environmental heroes if they recycled, but for, for far too many people, it ended there. You know, they, I recycle, therefore the environment's okay. Um, and you know, we've kind of forgotten about it. It's, it's really interesting. And what does the media report on when it comes to recycling? Well, they report on masses of plastic out in the ocean. They re report on the problems. But have you ever heard anybody talk about the solutions? And so, uh, you know, I, I think we, that's something we could challenge the media to do. And I think in this era of internet, uh, what I'm a, I consider myself to be a media, but I'm a specialist media. And I only cover energy issues and green energy issues. And, and I try to learn as much about it as I can. And that's a very different approach than the conventional media. It has its downsides and it has its upsides. Uh, but I think, you know, back to my recycling example, we need to start talking about the solutions. Recycling, for example, uh, could be one of the big solutions of climate change. If we just thought, rethought about it, we need a second coming of recycling. For some reason, I call it, and some authors call it, recycling complacency. And what's happened is we started all these programs and we thought, good on us, and then we just, it's out of our mind. And now, you know, the classic stereotypical image in a movie is of a lawyer walking down the street carrying what? A disposable cup of coffee. It's, it's almost like a, a symbol. It's like the cigarettes of the 50s. You know, in the movies, as a guy was walking down the street, he would have been smoking a cigarette. Now he's holding a disposable cup when he walks down the street. Uh, and that's got to change. There needs to be a cultural change. And then there needs to be a change in the way we think about recycling. Because of the three R's, there's a reduce and a, a reuse component, which has largely been forgotten, which produces absolutely no emissions. Recycling is great for saving energy and emissions itself, but the other two are even better. So, um, you know, there's, there's people working on things like extended producer responsibility where producers take responsibility for the, the waste that they produce and come up with recycling programs and deal with those things. You know, but frankly, we need to get to the point where the person carrying the cup is, is a pariah instead of, instead of, you know, the classic stereotype of society uh, that's shown in the movies. You know, and it's it's crazy, but uh, that's what we got to have to get to. The the um, you think about the reusable cup. I I use a reusable cup quite a bit, uh, and uh, it's still pretty alternative. You know, we've thought about this for a long time. You're probably a greenie. Like people stereotype you if you're using one. Uh, we have to get past that. Yeah, and telling stories about that and, and, and changing the way even we represent things in storytelling. So you're talking about changing the way we represent the commonness of everyday life, right? The way we take for granted all of this waste. We ask all of our, our interviewees basically what they want the future to look like. I, I kind of ask you this question, but we ask not what you think it will look like, but what do you want the future to look like? If you could, you know, taking all of those stories that you've heard from all across the country about energy transition and understanding climate change, if you could transform all of that and have the future look blue skies, uh, what would you want it to look like? How would we be living? What would we be doing? How would we be, you know, acting and living together? Well, I, I think, you know, if we're to have a future, we need to address climate change. It's pretty simple. Uh, 
And uh, in doing that, it will mean a lot of things. It means our transportation systems uh, have got to and will change. I think they'll change anyways. It's just the question of how fast they'll change. Uh, the, w- the way we live and the kind of buildings that we work in have to change. Uh, so pretty much everything has to change, and which I think is kind of exciting. I know that scares some people, but you know I've already purchased a net zero home, so I'm looking forward to living in that and, and feeling pretty good about that. Uh, next would be the way you get around. you know. So that's going to change. So these are opportunities. So change is opportunity. Uh, and that's how you have to look at it. And that's the only way we're going to get through this, because if we have to drag people kicking and screaming all the way, we're just not going to get there. We need to get to, to them to embrace the vision and see these as, as opportunities. And I really think it is. You know, the home builders that I've met, and there's a lot of them. It's not just a little club of a couple. There's quite a few that have embraced these things. Uh, and they're inspiring people and they feel great about what they're doing. That in turn inspires them to do a better job and to aspire for more. Uh, and so uh, I think the issue is big, but I think it's also could be a powerful, powerful motivator. And the change will be just about everything. What you do uh, for work, wh- where you work, <laughs> where you live, how you get there, uh, just about everything's going to change. Probably our food structures are going to change as well. Um, I think there will, it'll ne- we'll never get away from getting f- some food from other places. I mean, there's, there's emissions arguments to be made. Uh, sometimes depends on how you produce local food. It can be worse than bringing food in from somewhere else. People don't want to hear that. But, you know, if you look at the life cycle, uh, it can actually be worse. So what we need are systems for producing uh, food locally uh, that don't waste a lot of energy. So if you're just going to buy a bunch of natural gas generators and heat heat a greenhouse in Alberta, mm, I don't know how good that's going to turn out. But If, as a researcher at the University of Alberta told me recently, if you embrace geothermal, for example, and people always talk about a low temperature geothermal, that's the stuff you put in your house or a building, or high temperature geothermal, that's where they harvest uh, hotter than 100 degrees Celsius temperatures and boil a liquid, usually water, and turn turbines and generate energy. In the middle, there's something called mid-grade geothermal, which is 30 to 40 degrees Celsius. And we don't have a lot of the uh, the really high temperature stuff, there's not a huge resource of that. And the evidence for that is the fact that there are zero projects in Canada. Like not one has been developed yet. There's a few that are trying right now. But what, uh, I forget his name, the fellow. Jonathan from, Banks. Yes, Jonathan <laughs> Banks. And so what he says is uh, most of the oil wells that we have in this province could produce mid-range. And 30 to 40 degrees Celsius geothermal would be absolutely perfect for large growing operations of food or whatever you want to grow. So something I like to focus on with people is thinking about what could be gained. So you're talking about how we'll live differently, work differently, move differently, all of these things. So I think to entice people, it helps sometimes to imagine um, what might be better about a life that looks like that. Do you have any ideas about what would be better? What would be our gains aside from just, you know, uh, addressing climate change, which I think for some people feels ambiguous. Can you think of any really tangible, positive outcomes or? This is going to sound way too earnest, but uh, one of the things my wife and I did this spring was buy uh, electric bikes. 
And so I like cycling. I'm getting on in age. And uh, so my trip downtown, you know, some days I get up and I go, I don't know. It's going to be windy at the end of the day. I don't know if I want to cycle. You know, most of the barriers to things like cycling are perceived. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not. I believe, yeah, that's interesting. That's but, very true. But we bought these two uh, e-bikes. And, uh, you know, some of the research is indicating that people who buy these e-bikes actually get more exercise than people with regular bikes because they use them more often. And I can vouch, at least in my case, I can vouch for that. I look forward to getting on my e-bike. In fact, I've only taken two or three trips downtown all year that are not on my e-bike because it's easier. It's fun. Uh, I get to park at the front doors. So if I'm going to a meeting at a building, I park right at the front doors for free. I get there in about the same time as a car. So I think we have to rethink these things. Like we have to think a little bit out of the box. And, and you know, it's funny because conventional cyclists will turn up their noses at e-bikes and, and kind of laugh at them. But for me, it, it, it's turned something I wanted to do into a valid form of, uh, of transportation that is zero emissions, basically. I mean, very small amount of electricity goes into the battery that helps me. It's, I don't even know what the miles per gallon equivalent would be, but it would be staggering, whatever it is. But what's the added benefit? Health. <laughs> so, you know, if more and more people did this, there'd be not only fewer emissions, you would be healthier because you're exercising and you're burning calories, which is the thing we don't do these days as we sit on our butts uh, at our desks. I think all those things are great. It's, you know, there, there is change happening certainly here in this city and all across the country. So thanks for coming in and talking about some of your ideas around that. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast. Be sure to visit justpowers.ca to learn more about these issues, access resources, and discover related content. Just Powers is made possible by support from the University of Alberta's Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, and Campus Saint-Jean. This series of the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast is produced by Jesse Beyer and engineered by Catlin W. Cusick.